You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you guys again here this morning. Thanks for the privilege to, to share and open the word together. Last summer, a couple of months ago, uh, maybe three, four months ago, we got a letter from the the city, county, and I think it was city, uh, that someone might be dropping by just to check on our property and see if we need our taxes raised. Did you all get that letter? Some of you got the same letter? Nobody else in your owns property in Rapid City. Okay, I get it. Um, this happens periodically. And so sure enough, one of those days that I happened to be in the middle of the day, I was home, and a guy knocks on the door and wants to peek around my property. Um, he kind of made awkward small talk about the little sports stone I had, you know, kind of a little welcome thing for your team, and kind of made small talk. And But we kind of both knew that this was not a good interaction. There's no scenario where he comes through, looks at my property, and says, yeah, the last owners, they let their dogs and cats destroy it. I know you had to put a bunch of money into this to make it livable. The yard's been all torn up. There's no scenario where he looks at that and says, we're going to lower your taxes. <laughs> Instead, he said, oh, well, look at that. Somebody's put new windows in since we last were out here seven years ago. I better make a note of that. And my thought in my heart was, friend, do what you came to do quickly, right? <laughs> we all know that feeling of the tax man. And that gets us into our passage today. Jesus is going to interact with the tax man. And what he does completely flips the table. Now, you guys are familiar with this story. I think a lot of you, that the, the tax situation in ancient Judea was even more so irksome. Uh, than it is today. Um, so we're going to, our, our passage that Josh has assigned to me is actually three little mini units. But I want you to look for the thread as we go through. There's some things that unite them all. So take a, take a Bible. Uh, if you have one, grab it on your phone if you're so inclined. But we're going to look at Luke, cha- or excuse me, Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. I'll read the first one. And he, Jesus, went out beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now it's just the way he gets into this. Jesus is as rabbis would do, probably teaching as they're walking along the side, and they come to the tax booth. 
we can imagine, we don't know for sure, it's a little bit reading between the lines, but this is the toll booth on the road from uh, Damascus all the way to the Mediterranean coast. So just like a toll road, if you've ever been on one of those, everybody stops and pays their share. Pay your fair share, right? Does Jesus walk up and disrupt that? Does Jesus invite him as he's paying his tax? I would love to know this interaction, but Mark leaves it out completely. Uh, and the brevity lets us kind of look between the lines and imagine ourselves in that moment himself. Did his invitation negate his toll? Mark leaves it out because something much bigger is happening. Now, some of you are aware of this. Tax collectors in Judea were especially hated for a number of reasons. Number one, uh, they were the shakedown force for the Roman oppressors. It wasn't just that you were paying your tax to the Jewish system. You were actually paying your tax for the Romans so that they could continue to fund the army to continue to oppress you. Super not real popular. Like less popular than the guy coming and knocking on your door wanting to look at your property. Super not popular. The second reason they were not popular is because they were well known for overcharging so that they could be rich. So instead, I think this is interesting here. He saw, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, you dirty rat. No, he doesn't do that. He says, come follow me. Jesus cut through all of that cultural stuff, and who's on the right team and who's on the wrong team? And he says, you follow me. Can you hear the question jump out of that? To what? Follow me to what? And again, Mark leaves that completely vague at the moment. Part of our passage will begin to unpack that, but he leaves it for the whole document, for the whole gospel to be teased out as we go along. But you, you get into that question. Called to what? Follow me in what? And then it goes to this dinner. So we're probably moving from this moment by the roadside and it's easy to imagine that this is sort of like Levi, who we know as Matthew in the other Gospels. This is his farewell, farewell party. And so there are other tax collectors there and other sinners of undesignated status. We don't know who or what they were about. Um, but they're there reclining at table. Now, it's subtle, but it's, it's kind of presented as though Jesus is the one doing the hosting. They're reclining with Jesus. It's at Matthew's home. Matthew has put on this spread. And presumably there are wealthy people here. Now it doesn't look like the Pharisees are present. Maybe they are, but they seem to be like, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have hung out with those people. So maybe this is like the after dinner party or somewhere there where they're they connect with Jesus and they get a chance to ask his disciples this question and then Jesus goes to them directly. Now, he says, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
Now look at how deftly he handles this situation. At this point, Jesus is not confronting them. He's not embarrassing them. He lets them save face. He said, well, I haven't come to call the righteous, knowing full well that they imagine themselves as righteous. Self-righteous, we would say today. But he lets them have that illusion to say, I've come to call the sick. But in the midst of that, I love how these things just sort of pull us in. Well, who is the sick? Who is the righteous? And as we flesh this out throughout Mark's gospel and the rest of the New Testament, there's no one righteous, not even one. But they don't get that at this point. But it invites the question to them to start to ponder, if I want to be a part of his thing, do I need to identify myself as sick? And the answer, of course, is yes, but we're looking ahead here. So Jesus, framed by Mark as the host of this banquet, would they accept Jesus' invitation? Now, if you're, if you're a Bible reader, you know the rest of the story. There's already hints of the messianic wedding feast here in heaven. I love this beautiful. Just dropped in there for us to kind of think about and percolate. Now, for the typical Pharisee, it would not have surprised them that God saves sinners. Well, God wants to save the, the unrighteous. God wants to rescue those who need rescuing. It wouldn't have surprised them that God saves sinners. What was shocking to them was that God would save them as sinners, to take them as they are. And so, we kind of close out this little mini section, this little mini unit. But imagine this. For Levi, Matthew, there's a lot at stake here. Because it was, a, it was a sought after position to be a tax collector for the Romans because it was a well-paying job and you had the opportunity to line your own pockets. If you got that job, you were financially secure, you were stable, you were going to be able to take care of your, your debts, going to be able to take care of your family, and you were set for life. Because the Roman Empire wasn't going anywhere. And there's always going to be a need to collect more taxes. The economy goes bad, all the more the government's going to collect even more taxes rather than cut taxes. Because they need to keep funding their thing. Levi gave up a ton in walking away from this job on the spot because you can guarantee that if it didn't work out with this Jesus thing, he wasn't going back to that lifestyle. Come follow me. What makes a person do this? Mark does a good job of drawing us in as readers to see how this is going to turn out. So let's keep moving. Let's look at the next little section here. Verse 29 through 22. Excuse me. 19 through 22. Um, now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. 
No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If you've done, the patch tears away from, from it. And the new and the old and, the wor- and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and the sore the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So the, the context here is about a question about fasting. And it's a pretty normal question. Fasting was required in the Old Testament only on the Day of Atonement. By this point in time, it had come to be customary to fast on four holidays, but some Pharisees also fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. So it kind of looks like this is a holiday time, uh, any particular holiday, because they expect them to be fasting, and they're not. Well, okay, so you've been kind of associated with this John the Baptist guy. You've been uh, identified as a rabbi and your disciples are following you and learning your pathway through life, your walk of life as they learn to follow God like you. Uh, and all these other groups fast on these holidays, respecting the Old Testament traditions and law, but you're not fasting. Underneath that is, you're, doing, you're, you're purporting to say that you're part of this Old Testament system, that you're following the same God that we all say we follow, but you're doing it differently. And so it seems to be like it's an honest question here. And Jesus answers with this, these short little brief parables. Ultimately, this kind of doing things differently was going to lead people to ask if he really was following the same God or if this was something totally different. And the answer is yes. He was following the same God of the Old Testament. And this was a completely new thing. And that would become clearer in time. And on this occasion, he answers with two brief parables. The first is from the picture of a wedding feast. Um, Of course, the time at a wedding is a joyous occasion. It's a time of feasting, not fasting. Uh, And on a lot of occasions, they would actually celebrate a wedding for Many days, maybe even a whole week long. Uh, And so it's not a time to fast, to withdraw, to be morose or sorrowful or any of those things, but to celebrate everything that's happening. And the feasting was a sign that we accept God's goodness in all of this event that's taking place here that we're gathered for. Um, But implied here, Jesus says, there will be a time when the bridegroom is taken from them. Again, subtly here, he's identifying himself as the bridegroom. And tucked in here is this reference that no one probably got at the time. The bridegroom will be taken away. Well, well, wait. Take it by who? How so? What? Like, it's one of those things that Jesus tucks in there that only makes sense clear after the fact that people click, it clicks for them, and all of a sudden they say, oh, now I remember what he said. It's one of those things that you kind of gloss over in the moment. But he identifies himself as the bridegroom here. Again, inviting the question. For this kind of person who to this point has done miraculous healings, 
teaches with authority. He's even driven out demons. Who would be a fit bride for this groom? Fascinating to think about. And the second short parable about patching garments and new and old wineskins, it isn't a picture that readily makes sense to us today, but they wouldn't have put wine into an old skin. For the fermenting process, sometimes they put it into a skin, tied it up tight, and as that grape juice fermented and turned into wine, it would have expanded it. And so if you've got an old, dry, brittle skin, what's going to happen? It's going to crack, it's going to burst, you're going to lose your wine, and the skin itself is shot. Makes sense. But it, it's an obvious picture to them. The parallel is talking about things old and new. Why aren't Jesus' disciples fasting? Because fasting was part of the old system. Fasting was part of the old forms. And the old forms don't fit the new thing that Jesus is doing. Again, the question is implied here. How is it new? In what ways is it new? And how do I get to be a part of it? The third little mini unit for today also is something that we don't totally get from our vantage point, observing the Sabbath. Look at the last little passage here, 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? And he and those who were with him, and how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So this whole anecdote feels really arcane to us today. So they're just kind of walking, having a, a, a Sabbath day. We would think of it was Sunday afternoon, a Saturday afternoon scroll. And they're just kind of picking some grain heads and just kind of snacking on it as they go. And well, why is that a big deal? Like, well, we just read the from Exodus 20, the commandment to observe the Sabbath, and on the Sabbath, do no work at all. Well, by this point in time, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders had added all kinds of tiny little rules to make sure that nobody crossed the line, that everybody knew really clearly what was acceptable and what was out of bounds and what was going to get you in trouble with God, supposedly. So the idea that you could pick any grain at all, even just this little casual, clearly they're not doing work. They're not working. They're not bringing in a harvest. But they considered this out of bounds. This feels weird to us, but that's what it's about. And Jesus flips the script on them. See, they're thinking, we know this law. In fact, a lot of them have probably memorized the entire thing. They knew it super well. They knew all of the extra rules that had been added onto it. And Jesus says to them, who are so confident in everything that they know and think they've got everything just right, have you not read? 
that's kind of a, you don't really know it as well as you think you do. Have you not read? Of course they had read. They'd memorized the whole thing. Have you not read? Well, that's a little bit of a dig. But he comes to it on their terms. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change the argument right from your own scriptures. And he gives it a fresh interpretation. He goes to this story about David. When David was on the run from Saul, perhaps you're familiar with it um, from the, the, the stories of Samuel and Kings. David was on the run from Saul and he ate this bread that was only for the priest to eat indicating that the Sabbath isn't meant to be served, but is meant to serve people. So, look at his conclusion statement there in the, next, in, the, in the final line. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay, so we just read it from Exodus 20. You can read the same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 5. But that comes from the section we know as the Ten Commandments, Right? So if you could think of a summary of the entire law, all of the positive and negative commandments given to the Israelites to follow and make sure they obey, the ten, like for sure we're going to get the ten. And Jesus goes to one of the obvious ten. Like there are a couple of things that were, like if you were going to be a practicing Jew, like you just couldn't get around of just like an obvious, like this is symbolic of following the whole law. You observe the Sabbath. You rested on the Sabbath day. Like, that was just an obvious. Everybody did that. And Jesus comes in and he says, I'm more important than even the Sabbath. If the Ten Commandments is symbolic of the whole law and this obvious one that you can't violate without getting observed by your friends and neighbors and the priests and Levites, etc. Jesus says, I'm better than all of it. I'm more important than all of it. I'm sorry, what? Come again? How? Think of how that is absolutely paradigm-blowing for these men at this point. Because... There was all kinds of reasons to love the law. There was all kinds of reasons to be faithful to the law. But follow his logic here. If he's greater than the Sabbath, well, where does this stop? Jesus is greater than the law. They had reason to love the law. It was God's special revelation of his character and to them uniquely. His revelation of his will. The story of how he chose them to be his special people and how he chose them to be the channel of blessing to all of the nations. And you're telling me, young rabbi who we don't even know where you come from, that you're greater than the law? That's blasphemy, unless it's true. And so you can see through the lines, between the lines here, you can see the gears grinding for these guys doing the logic of what Jesus is saying. But it's not just a propositional debate. 
It's not just abstract facts. Jesus is offering them an invitation to something so much greater. Maybe you've seen or heard this Tim Keller clip. He describes Jesus as the true and better Adam who passed his test in the garden. Jesus is the true and better Noah who delivers his family from destruction and God's wrath. Jesus is the true and better Abraham through whom all the families of the earth will truly be blessed. Jesus is the true and better David. Jesus is the true and better prophet, prophet, the better king. And he is the true and lasting Sabbath. All of it points to Jesus. Jesus is greater than all of it. And all of it finds its fulfillment in Jesus and points to him. And when this huge, powerful system, God's special revelation, when Jesus comes on the scene, the law, if you will, if I could give it human characteristics, bows down to him and defers completely rather than stand immovable. Jesus is the point of all of it. And so this new thing that Jesus is describing in these three short passages, it's better and it's greater. It's better than anything they could have imagined. It's better than anything you and I could have imagined. And it's greater than all of it. And from where they sat, as the guardians of God's word, the guardians of God's special revelation, it would have been nearly impossible to reconcile. I say nearly impossible without the supernatural intervention of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is inviting them to see that exactly. So what links these three little passages? What's the thread that kind of sews them together? It gives it a little unity. They all share the aspect of defying conventions. In all three of these little mini units, Jesus is turning expectations upside down. In his kingdom, sinners are welcomed, not shunned. This kingdom is bigger than the old forms. They're just not going to get it done. The old forms of celebration and observance, they weren't big enough and good enough for what Jesus was talking about. They're not adequate. There's something less obvious, though, that links these three passages, I think. And that is that there's a new era of feasting and rejoicing and celebrating coming. And we're all invited to it. This coming kingdom, it isn't about the rules. It's about Jesus himself. And most importantly, it is a kingdom for sinners. It's a kingdom for those who are sick. Friends, this is such good news. The calling of Levi, this little story here, it's not just history that tells us how Jesus got his 12. Levi's life is a parable. Levi was rejected by the religious establishment and likely even by his neighbors and family. But Jesus sought him out. Jesus' kingdom is for sinners. 
also, we're all sinners. Matthew, Levi is us. And at this point, Jesus was still being subtle with the Jewish leadership, inviting them to consider that maybe they weren't as righteous as they thought. You and I, hopefully we have no such illusions. That we followed the law perfectly. That we're aware that we are desperately sick. And if you and I are still enough, long enough, we will know this. I like, I like the way we just did confession here. Silence. Let it sit. Don't be too brief about it. Let it soak in. Because in our day and age, we can distract ourselves endlessly. And when we never allow ourselves the stillness and quietness to reflect, we'll never call out for salvation. We'll never repent of the things that are in our heart. And so when we finally stop, uh, and then as you did proclaim the gospel over those things that finally bubble to the surface, so good, so true. We don't need to look very far to see the evidence of our sickness. And so if we feel that, if you feel that in your heart, at any given moment throughout the week, the anger, Anger at the tax guy. I'll confess mine right up here, right? The anger, the distrust and paranoia. Judgmentalism, insecurity, anxiety, and a lack of trust in God. Whatever it is that bubbles to your mind in that moment of quiet, if you look at that, we don't look far, we see the evidence of our sickness. And if you do, and you feel this like I do, then do not despair, instead rejoice. Because Jesus' invitation is for people who can see their sickness. That is the gospel. It's a kingdom for those who are sick. Also, everybody's sick, but not everybody really sees it. If you are willing to look and own it. Not confess it before everybody. We don't need to do any of that. Just own it. Then this invitation of this kingdom is for people like you and I. It's not for those who imagine themselves already whole. Who imagine themselves as healthy. Who people know where they really are. And if you can see that in yourself, then rejoice that you see your need and rejoice that Jesus' invitation is to you. Because the wedding banquet of the great bridegroom of heaven is for people like you and me who rejoice in our weakness and brokenness and who lay our sin at his feet. This is the only requirement to join him at his banquet table. Will you see yourself sick enough to come? Would you pray with me? Lord, help us see our sickness. Help us to lean into it and not shy away from it. To rejoice in our weaknesses that you might be shown strong. 
I pray that we would all here today be freed from the weight of false pretense and freed from feeling the need to pretend that we have it together. Lord, for some of us, that takes great courage to face down and own what we really see in our sick souls. Give us that courage. Jesus, please help us abide with you in the true light of the gospel. We pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.